verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. If you have a Bible from the back of the gymnasium, it's on page 984, 984 of the uh, Bibles. Colossians 3, starting with verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. We are back in Colossians this morning, and we got two more sermons. We're going to consider the rest of chapter 3 this morning and the beginning of chapter 4, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll wrap up with a very, a little bit longer ending uh, to Paul's letter to this church. Well, it's Thanksgiving week. And I hope you're looking forward to the opportunity to gather together uh, with family and friends um, to give thanks to the Lord and to feast and to celebrate, and that's appropriate to do. And if you remember, Thanksgiving was a real big theme, a really big theme, last week in our sermon on Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. In fact, that whole section is bracketed with Thanksgiving. I don't think I pointed that out, so let me point that out to you now. You see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, that, or actually, sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, let's look there first, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there's the giving thanks piece, and that flows throughout that section. Look back at verse 15, we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which we were just doing, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And so we see in verse 16 that reality, and also in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. So it seems that thanksgiving is to be a part of our lives on an ongoing, regular basis. And while it's appropriate to have a holiday, which memorializes that and calls us to that, the Bible is continually calling us to that, uh, as we see in verse 15, 16, and 17, that we are to live lives of continual thankfulness. But notice today's passage is bracketed in thankfulness. Verse 17 forms the upper bracket, and verse 2 of chapter 4 forms the lower bracket. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul seems hung up on this. I mean, come on, man, we got it. All right, you've said it over and over and over and over and over again. Do you know why he has to say it over and over and over and over again? Because we're not thankful. <laughs> By nature, we are not thankful. We have to be commanded four times in the span of a handful of verses to be thankful people. Now, the question I have for us this morning, though, is how do we manifest thankfulness to Jesus in this passage? If this passage is bracketed with calls to thanksgiving... How do we manifest thankfulness? Well, surely, letting the peace of Christ rule among us, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, doing whatever we do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing steadfastly in prayer. All those are ways to be thankful. But in this particular passage, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, the main way we manifest thankfulness to Jesus is by living under his lordship. If we are really thankful to Jesus, we will welcome 
and acknowledge and embrace and live under his lordship. The centrality of Christ's lordship in this passage and, and its extension into our homes and our jobs, which is where two-thirds of our life is anyway, the other third is spent unconscious in bed, so there could be nothing more practical than for us to consider what we're doing with 67% of our life on earth. And you know what you're supposed to do with that 67% of your life on earth? Living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you know what you're supposed to do with that other third that you're out conscious, unconscious? That's telling you that you're not the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So in all of our lives... We're to live our lives under the lordship of Christ. During the two-thirds when we're awake, in our homes and in our families, in our workplaces, and when we're unconscious, acknowledging that he's the Lord and we're not. So look at, look at how this shows up again and again in this passage. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's an acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus. Verse 20, husbands, love your wives, or sorry, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. There's another reference to lordship. Verse 22, bond servants obeying everything, those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There's another reference to lordship. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. There's another reference to lordship. Verse 24 says that we're to, we're, we're to look forward to receiving the inheritance as a reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. Paul is teaching what it looks like to live functionally under the lordship of Christ. And I would say that we will not find probably a more offensive passage to our culture than this text we're going to consider this morning. He addresses six different groups of people, wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, and masters, and every single one of them is offensive to us in our natural state. And do you know why it's offensive? Because we're the Lord of our lives, not Jesus. That's why it's offensive. Now, in whatever, to whatever degree that we, even as God's people, who desire to please and live under the Lordship of Christ, to whatever degree we sense some resistance in this, there is residual pushback in our own souls that remains against the lordship of Christ. I know it exists in my life, and I'm sure it exists in yours as well. So the theme of this text is that the way we live in our families and in our homes and in our workplaces reveals who our Lord is. I'll, I'll say the theme again. The way that we live in our families and in our jobs, reveals who our Lord is. Everyone is responsible. Everyone. Everyone in this whole uh, group of people that he's going to address, wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, masters, they're all responsible to submit to King Jesus. No one gets out from under that. We are all responsible to submit our lives to the Lord. It just manifests itself in different ways. And so let's consider the ways in which the lordship of Christ is to manifest itself in our families and in our jobs. First of all, let's start with the home, because this is where Paul starts. So we're going to look at, first of all, point number one, the lordship of Christ in marriage. The lordship of Christ in marriage. And this is in verses 18 and 19, very simple, profound instructions and principles, but nonetheless are open to great ridicule in our own day, and perhaps even residual ridicule in our own Hearts, but let's look at these one at a time. First of all, verse 18, Paul's a gentleman, ladies first. So he wants to address the wives first. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So wives under the lordship of Christ are to submit themselves to their husbands. Now, now what would be the opposite? If, if a wife was not under the lordship of Christ then she would find that command offensive and uh, you know, punitive and demeaning and demoralizing and all that stuff. So let's talk about, first of all, what this doesn't mean 
lest we uh, take away from this something that Paul never intended us to take away from. So seven quick things about what this uh, living a, a submission, uh, a submissive life to your husband, wives, does not mean. First, it, obedience and submission are not the same thing. Okay, a lot of times in our mind we can equate obedience with submission as though it said, wives, obey your husbands in everything for this pleases the Lord. Obedience is not submission. There are two totally different words that are used here. Verse 18 says, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 20 says, children, obey your parents. There is a different difference there. I just want to point that out first. Second, this doesn't mean the wife is less valuable than the husband or is incompetent. That is not what Paul is saying. Third, this doesn't mean that women are inferior to men. Number four, this doesn't mean a wife has no influence on her husband. Number five, this is a voluntary act by the wife in obedience to Jesus, not a coerced or forced act on the part of the husband. This is not wives submit to your husband because that's what he said. This is wives Create a posture in your heart of willing, voluntary, uncoerced, unforced desire to follow the leadership of your husband as an, as an expression of obedience and love for Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean, also, number six, universal submission of all kinds. Certainly doesn't mean if the husband is doing something and calling his wife to sin and then using this verse to, to try to get her to do that. That's not right, and it's not to be done. In fact, it's an abdication of the husband's responsibility to love his wife. Number seven, this doesn't mean women are to submit to men in general, as though it's all women submit to all men. No, this is a very specific relationship in which wives and husbands are to work out a harmonious relationship of leadership and submission, of love and respect toward one another, as an expression of lordship under Jesus Christ in which their home and their marriage can flourish. So what does it mean? All that, what it doesn't mean. Here's the simple definition that I think submission entails. It is a disposition to honor and affirm her husband's authority and an inclination to respect and embrace his leadership under Jesus Christ. Let me read it one more time. Submission is a disposition to honor and affirm her husband's authority and an inclination to respect and embrace his leadership. And any wife who is living under the lordship of Christ will love, will love, will love to do that, especially if her husband is obeying verse 19. So guys, let's go to that for us now. Husbands under the lordship of Christ love their wives. Husbands under the lordship of Christ love their wives. This means, brothers, that we honor our wives, that we love and care for them as much as we love and care for ourselves and as much as Jesus loves and cares for us. This is what it means to love our wives, according to Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church. But he adds a specific word to us which can be all too common for us as husbands, even Christian husbands, because he's addressing Christian husbands here. And he says in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does is, what is harshness look like? Let me give you some examples of what harshness might look like from a husband to his wife. Controlling. Being very controlling over his wife. There, where there, there's a relationship that's marked more, more by withdrawals than deposits. You've heard that analogy before, right? A withdrawal is when you have to correct someone or something like that, whereas a withdrawal or a deposit is words of encouragement and affirmation and honor. And where there is a relationship that's marked more by criticism and, and all of that than encouragement and love and help, there will be a sense of harshness that is a part of the husband's relationship to his wife. Physical intimidation verbal intimidation, public humiliation, not distinguishing between sins and mistakes, and non-relational interaction, no fun, inconsiderate. We could, we could fill the list out over and over again with ways in which harshness can be manifested in a husband toward his wife. Now, 
the question to ask is just step back from this and say, why does Paul tell wives and husbands to live in that way toward one another? Well, because quite simply, this is how the lordship of Christ expresses itself in a marriage, in a human marriage. So ultimately, the husband and the wife treat each other the way they do because of who their Lord is. Jesus is, our, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is our Lord, husbands, so therefore we love our wives. Jesus is our Lord, wives, therefore we submit, offer a disposition to honor and respect and love our husbands. Most of the problems in marriage result from the unwillingness on one or both parties to surrender their lordship over their own lives. And therefore, we fail to relate to each other in the way that Jesus commands because we want to exercise lordship over our lives or that of our spouse. We are not good lords of our lives, especially in terms of marriage. Whether we are the husband or the wife, we are not to live for ourselves but for the other. That's what Paul's teaching here. The wife loves her husband, honors her husband, respects her husband, seeks to submit to her husband out of an obedience to Jesus. The husband, in turn, lays his life down for his wife to love her, to bless her, to honor her, to respect her, to care for her. Both man and woman, if I can say this, have the Jesus role in marriage. Now, I'm not undermining what Paul said in Ephesians 5, that the husband, as a reflection of Jesus, lays his life down for his wife, and the wife, as the church, submits to her husband. But there is another sense in which both man and woman have an aspect of Jesus in their role. The husband gets to imitate Jesus in his self-sacrificial authority. Jesus didn't use his authority to command the church just to, to buck up and get it together and fix it yourself. Jesus laid his life down for the church. He died for the church. He gave himself up. He surrendered his concerns, his agenda, his rights, his privileges. He didn't make demands on the church. He died for the church. And that's how he transformed the church. And that's how he saved the church. And that's why we're here this morning as members of that church. But the wife also gets to imitate Jesus in his self-sacrificial submission to his father's will. So Christian marriage is like a dance. The man and the woman may take slightly different steps, but each is constantly seeking to defer, to give up their rights, to give up their wants and needs for the sake of the other. That's the dance of Christian Marriage. Now, we've been talking a lot about marriage these days um, over the past several months because we're be, we've been pushing and encouraging you to take part in a new marriage initiative we're launching next year called Grace Marriage. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Brad Rhodes, one of the pastors at Pleasant Valley and the founder of Grace Marriage, came and spoke to us. And uh, Jeremy, our brother, uh, is also working for Grace Marriage now. And um, so what I want to do is make one kind of final Final plug for this, okay, and encourage you all to get involved in Grace Marriage. We have a few spaces left. Many of you responded to Brad's appeal when he came and spoke and signed up, and thank you for getting involved in that. Um, so what I want to do is show one more quick promo. That's about a two-minute video where Brad's going to speak a little more and, and, and express the need for why we as wives and husbands, in an effort to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ, need to go to work on our marriage for the glory of God. So let's turn it over to Brad. So you might be asking yourself, why should my spouse and I get involved in our church's new wellness marriage structure? Why should we do grace marriage coaching? Well, it just makes sense take one day or six hours every 90 days to work on the most important horizontal relationship in your life. Life is really busy. It is hard to manage. 
if you're like me, life can just feel overwhelming at times. And just to take a day with the Lord and your spouse and just to think and look big picture and try to see what we're trying to accomplish and to take time to be grateful to God for your spouse, for your family, and then to seek God's wisdom and how to make it better, more joyful, more God-glorifying, it just helps simplify things. It helps you grow in biblical knowledge as to having effective marriage. Scripture lays out how we can have vibrant, wonderful marriages that are enjoyable to us, that we can richly enjoy and bring Him glory. But it doesn't happen by accident. I've heard it said nothing's great by accident. But if you start investing in your marriage, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Some of the emotions, the life, and the joy will come back in and your home will be more vibrant. It'll be more fun. It'll be better for your kids. It'll be better for future generations. God will get more glory and then other marriages will join you in this. It just reduces anxiety. When you stop and kind of seek God and realize God's sovereign, everything's okay. Now, Lord, help me and give me guidance. I'm working together with my spouse going forward. I don't do it on purpose, but unless I'm engaged and encouraged, I become passive. And when I become passive as a husband, our home becomes relatively stale. We just go through the motions trying to get everything done. When I'm proactive and not passive, and I'm encouraged to be intentional, I start being intentional as to loving Maryland and enjoying Maryland, my life is so much better. I enjoy life so much better when I'm enjoying my wife. So we really want to encourage you to join a Grace Marriage Coaching Group. One day every 90 days to invest in and protect the most important horizontal relation in your life just makes sense. The evil one is out there prowling around looking for someone to devour and being intentional to make sure it's great and not vulnerable and growing and not static or retreating. It's just wise and it makes sense. My wife and I are in it. Many of the leaders in your church are in it. And we ask you to join you in being proactive in managing your life and enjoying your spouse. Thank you for the opportunity to work with your local church. We're excited about your church having effective ongoing wellness marriage ministry. Thank you for joining this movement, and we'd appreciate your prayers that it spreads to churches all over this country. All right. So, Jeremy is here this morning. He'll be out there. We still have some cards. If you're interested in it, sign up. We'll get you information in December. We're planning to launch the, the coaching groups early next year. And uh, here are a few bullet points. Uh, you know, it's always good to kill a sermon midway, so let's just kill it with some statistics right now. All right, so I'm going to give you some stats to help you think through about whether or not this would be something that would be worth your investment. Okay? So a weekend marriage conference, if you were just to go to a weekend marriage conference, Katie and I did one, one about a year ago or something, and we even got like a discounted rate for pastors and church leaders, and it was still expensive. It was, it was more or it was as close to what we would spend in a half year, probably, of grace marriage. Um, a, a weekend marriage conference would cost about 600 bucks for conference and hotel alone, if you were to go somewhere, and that's assuming you probably just drive. Um, 12 weeks of crisis marriage counseling um, could cost upwards of $1,200 with a, with a Christian certified marriage counselor. Uh, the attorney retainer for divorce is approximately $2,000, and that's roughly the cost of seven years of marriage coaching. Um, the average time that's spent on youth sports per year is $2,300. The average time that's spent on paying for television and the internet per year is $2,200. A full day of quarterly marriage coaching uh, for four times a year is about $300. More marriages experience infidelity, 41%, than those who regularly, than those who experience a regular date night, which is 30%. And there's probably a relationship between those things. The average couple takes 35 minutes per, per week, while the average adult spends two hours and 51 minutes per day on a cell phone. There's a 900% increase in our culture in cohabitation. Divorces in those over 50 years old have tripled or have doubled, and divorces for those over 65 years old have tripled. So older couples, you think you're okay? 
but you're not intentionally investing in your marriage right now, your, your rate of divorce is still high. There's a lot that can happen in a few years. It doesn't take long. There is roughly a one in two chance in our culture that a marriage will end. One in two. One in two. I've been a pastor for seven years, and I've seen enough to know that marriages are in trouble. Marriages are in trouble. And we have got to intentionally, proactively deal with it. So in light of these sad truths, we have to step forward, we have to invest, and we have to protect our marriages. One hour in marriage wellness is more effective than three hours in intensive crisis counseling. We take care of our cars, we take care of our finances, we take care of our health. Our marriages are very important. We're way overdue in terms of spending time protecting our marriages and expressing the lordship of Christ over this area of our lives, saying, Jesus, your Lord, I have got to intentionally work in blessing and helping my marriage. Spending six hours every 90 days on the most important horizontal relationship in your life, it just makes sense, as Brad said. Investing time and a little money into this important relationship is some of the best money that you and time that you'll spend. It has been for Katie and I the last five years. Grace Marriage is not a community group. It's not a small group where you're asked to share every single detail of your marriage with a bunch of people you have relatively little or no relationship with. That is not the point of coaching. It is a forum where you get the space to free up your mind and your schedule to interact with your spouse and to think and talk with them so that you can enjoy each other more, be more strategic, and stay on the same page. Can you think of a better Christmas gift to each other? Look, our church is not making money off of this, okay? I want you to be clear on that. We are doing this as an effort to engage our, 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 our families and our couples in our church in ministry. Or older folks with married children, could this be a great Christmas gift for them to give them in their church, if they, assuming they have a church, either their members here or they have a, maybe another church in Owensboro that they attend? So, in light of this, with Grace Marriage, you know, launching uh, broader beyond uh, just our own local community, but actually spilling out into other communities in Kentucky and even around the region, um, there is going to be a conference that we're hosting locally. Okay, Grace Marriage is putting it on. It's right here. Please mark this on your calendars. If you're in a Grace Marriage group, you get a discount for it. Gary Thomas is coming. It's uh, Ballet Magnificat's performing. Ben Cecil's doing comedy. Brad, Brad and Marilyn will be speaking at the conference. It's a marriage conference, February 10th, Valentine's Day weekend. It's an all-day Saturday kind of thing, similar to what a Grace Marriage coaching group would be. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon to like 8 o'clock at night. Um, it's very inexpensive comparatively. Dinner is provided for the first 550 or so people who register. But just mark it out. We'll get more information out to you. You can check out the website, gracemarriage.com forward slash cherish, and that will give you all the information you need about this marriage conference coming up February 10th. So I'm not, this, okay, I'm bending all these nails over because Paul is teaching us about marriage this morning. And these are opportunities or practical applications of ways in which you as husbands and wives could invest in the most important horizontal relationship in your wife, in your life, including your wife. All right, book closed, point number two. Let's move on. All right, the lordship of Christ in parenting, verses 20 and 21. So here's the next area of life that Paul is going to address for us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First of all, children. Here's a word for you, kiddos. All right, everybody listen up. I know you know this verse. Your parents and pastors repeat it to you repeatedly. It's like, am I ever going to hear any other verse? But there's a reason. I want to explain to you this. I want to explain to you this morning why this verse is in the Bible for you. All right? So uh, letter A, children, under the lordship of Christ, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. First of all, I want you to notice it's a short command, okay? As children, you have limited attention spans, all right? So Paul packs it all in right here in this one little verse and says, children, here's your responsibility. If you want to live with Jesus as your Lord, here's the way 
you live with Jesus as your Lord. Say, can I be a Christian as a young person? Absolutely. And what is his main command to you in these younger years? Obey your parents. Obey your parents. In everything. Which means you're not negotiating here. If you start negotiating obedience, it's a manifestation that Jesus isn't your Lord. But if you want Jesus as your Lord, then you will obey your parents in everything. Why? Because that pleases the Lord. What did Jesus do when he was your age? Do you know what Jesus did? He did this verse. He did this verse. He obeyed his parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. We see that in Luke chapter 2. Kids, do you often struggle to know whether or not you're saved or not? You know, because you're growing up in the Christian church and you're around Christian influence. Some of you go to a Christian school, you hear sermons, you're involved uh, in, in, the ch- in the life of the church, you attend Heritage Kids or Sunday school, and so you're, you're getting a lot of, of, of Bible content and you believe it and you're, you, you think you believe it, and you, but you struggle to whether you know if you're saved or not. Let me tell you, here's an evidence of whether or not you can know that you're saved and that Jesus is the Lord of your life, because that's what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved is you transfer the lordship of your life over to Jesus. You say, I'm not calling the shots anymore. Jesus is calling the shots. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to become a Christian. And the way in which that manifests itself is ask yourself, how's your relationship with your parents? Is your relationship with your parents marked by a desire to obey them in an increasing God-honoring, God-glorifying way because Jesus is your Lord. You, you don't do it ultimately because you like everything that your parents say or that you agree with every single thing they ask you to do. That's not the issue. The issue is that Jesus is your Lord. So as a child, you say, okay, mom, dad, I might not like this, and I'm doing this because I love Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey you because I love Jesus. Do you have a growing desire to obey them, to obey your parents as an expression of worship to Jesus? If you do, that's one of the greatest evidences that you can know whether or not you're a Christian. It's not the only evidence, but it's an, but it's an important one. In fact, our former pastor, Jonathan, wrote on his Facebook this past week the following. He said, How you treat your parents in your youth in terms of honor, obedience, and respect is a good measure of your general attitude toward God. Honor, respect, and obedience in your parents to your parents is the first step in learning how to honor and obey God for a lifetime. End quote. So if you're convicted about that and you feel yourself, oh, I've I have such a sinful heart and I and I don't want to obey and I and I have no in fact I find in many ways I don't have any desire whatsoever to obey my parents what can you do if you are convicted about that then you are ripe for salvation you're ripe for salvation here's the good news of the gospel Jesus lived his early years in obedience to his parents because he knew that you wouldn't and he knew that he, in doing so, he could be your savior. And so if you will entrust yourself to Jesus as Lord, who obeyed imperfect parents perfectly for you, then he'll receive you and he'll forgive you. And you can be brought into the kingdom of God. And you can be forgiven of all of your sins and you can be adopted into God's family. So do that this morning, kids. If you're a Christian right now, then make it your endeavor to, to set this verse always before you as, an, as a manifestation of worship to Jesus, of thankfulness to Jesus, of living under the lordship of Jesus, for the praise of Jesus, until you are in a position where you're grown and out from under the authority of your parents, and then you'll spend your life in honoring them under the lordship of Jesus, but no longer obeying them. All right, so that's, that's the word that Paul gives to children. 
Now he has a word for us as fathers. Fathers, under the lordship of Christ, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now you say, Paul seems to be beating up on the guys. All right, he already assumes we're going to be harsh with our wives, which is justified. Certainly justified to address me that way. And then verse 21, he names fathers. Now, why is he not picking on the moms? All right, why is he not saying anything to the moms? He says something to the fathers, but he's not saying anything to the mothers. That's because in the society to whom he's writing, in early Greek life, the father was the head of the home in every conceivable, even ungodly way. And the ways in which that manifests itself, in fact, in many Greek houses, the father had his own floor. And everybody else lived on the lower floor, and the father lived on the top floor. And so to manifest his absolute rulership over everything. So Paul knew what he was getting into. He was getting into a sinfully, heavily patriarchal society that was way overboard in terms of the, the vision of a dad. See, uh, see, now dads, let me go back to this whole thing, because I think some of you guys are thinking about remodeling. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, you, well, see, what's happened in ours, our culture is not that you, we, we haven't gone above, we've gone below. The man cave. Okay, so we're under. So, guys, that you're under the family. You're serving the family. Okay, so build your caves, all right, as a manifestation of the fact that you are under your family as a servant to them all. But if we see any guys, you know, around town who are adding sub substantial additions on the roofs of their house, we might have to talk. So, fathers under the lordship of Christ, don't provoke your children. Dads, we got to take um, serious the command not to exasperate and embitter our children. Uh, John Stone Street, who's the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, reports the following. Listen to this quote. He speaks to lots of youth events all around the United States, and he said, quote, The biggest apologetics question that teens ask me is about suffering. Behind 90% of those questions is suffering in the home. And 90% of that suffering has to do with their relationship with their dad. That's tragic. That has got to change. He's speaking to Christian kids. He's not just speaking out and about, and he does that, but he's, he's mainly referencing kids who would profess to grow up in, in Christian homes. So Paul's point is to urge us here, dads, to avoid exerting our authority in a way that berates our children, is unduly severe to them, that results in a negative emotional reaction from our children. To provoke means to make resentful or to make someone bitter. Resentful children, bitter children. If your children resent you or are bitter towards you, the question to ask yourself is it because I was provoking them to be? That I was discouraging them in that direction? Here are some ways to provoke. Criticism with little encouragement. Physical intimidation. Correction without instruction. Verbal abuse. Public humiliation. Not distinguishing between sins and mistakes. These sound very similar to... Paul's instructions about harshness to wives. Favoritism, treating certain kids with more love. Being emotionally absent. Being overprotective or not having any protective boundaries. Having unrealistic expectations or no expectations. No sense of delight in your children from them. And not confessing and owning your own sin in their presence. Those are all ways that children can become discouraged. So, of course, this exhortation doesn't mean, dads and moms, that we don't exert authority or that we never require obedience from our children. But it's all too easy for us to treat our children with less courtesy, love, and respect than we should. They are image bearers of God first. And therefore, they demand and deserve respect, courtesy, and love, even as we require obedience from them and exercise authority over them. Firmness is necessary, but it should always be tempered with a loving spirit. 
And so like I just gave an encouragement to children, dads, I want to give encouragement to you as well. When we start, when Paul starts to remind us of things like this and the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts and reminds us of, as wives, the ways we haven't honored our husbands and submitted to them, as husbands, the ways that we haven't loved our, loved our wives and, and, and been encouraging to them rather than harsh to them, or as children, when we haven't obeyed our parents and as fathers, when we've provoked our children, let me give you gospel hope, okay? Collapse on Jesus. Collapse on Jesus with every amount of repentance that your heart can muster. Collapse on Jesus. And then dads, if you're especially convicted about this, have a conversation, probably a series of conversations over many months with your children and seek forgiveness. Seek forgiveness where you need to seek forgiveness as an expression of lordship to Jesus regardless of how your kids respond, regardless of whether they take your counsel or listen to you or not. Jesus is Lord. He's convicted me of my sin. I've sought his forgiveness. I've collapsed on him. I've sought your forgiveness. I'm seeking your forgiveness too. Will you forgive me? And do that. And let's see what the Lord Jesus does. Now, that's a lot of negative, you know, it's focusing on the negative side of the ledger. Um, I've been reading a book recently um, called Faith That Lasts, and it's about raising children and parenting them in such a way that when they grow up, they actually love Jesus and love the church. Now, obviously, we're not in control of all that, you know. Proverbs are principles, not prescriptions. I mean, you know, we have godly people in our own church, and I always hate, there's a kind of a love-hate relationship in preaching on parenting because I know that there's easy, it's so easy. I mean, marriage and parenting issues are, are just cesspools for discouragement. They can, I mean, just the slightest thing can, can kind of send us into a discouraging spiral, and that's not my goal this morning. Um, so don't let me, don't, don't hear this as some sort of prescription that, oh, if I only would have done that, or if I do this, that my children will just turn out as, you know, golden Christians who love and serve Jesus every single day of their lives. That's not the case. Every, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed in the Bible to find a godly man or woman that didn't have problem with his kids, okay? That's pretty universal in Scripture, even among the godliest. So it's just a reality of the fall and, and the world in which we live. But here's a few principles that I think are, are helpful guidelines and things we need to consider as we begin thinking through proactively, especially those of us who are on the younger end of the spectrum and still have time with our children, um, ways that we can invest. And here's the five principles uh, this author gives, John Nelson. Principle one, balance. He says, parents whose children grow up to love Jesus and remain active in the church tend to find the right balance between helicopter parenting on the one side and let it go parent on the other side. They are actively engaged in their children's lives spiritually without falling prey to being overly obsessive and controlling. Principle number two, modeling. Parents whose children grow up to love Jesus and remain active in the church tend to model well a genuine faith to their children through their own love for and service to the church, humility and authentic faith and love for spouses and people around them. They practice what they preach so that their kids cannot accuse them of hypocrisy. Principle three, gospel. Parents whose children grow up to love Jesus and remain active in the church tend to be the ones who have established a gospel-centered approach to parenting rather than an approach that is purely moralistic, legalistic, pragmatic, or even theocentric. I think that's a good word. It's not just God-centered we're talking about, it's Christ-centered. They seek to infuse daily life with gospel truth, directing their children to not a religious system, but to the person and work of Jesus Christ, whose death for sin and resurrection from the dead alone can give power for obedience and faith and holiness. Principle four, sharing. Parents whose children grow up to love Jesus and remain active in the church tend to be ones who have intentionally shared their kids with people in the church of all different ages, who've helped their children know Jesus and learn more about life in him. They resist the urge to control every aspect of their kids' lives, and instead they actively partner with others who will speak God's truth to their children in winsome and powerful ways, supporting their fundamental work of gospel-centered parenting and discipleship in the home. So the church community has a role. All of us have a role. And then principle five, friendship. 
Parents whose children grow up to love Jesus and remain active in the church tend to be the ones who have pursued deep friendships with their children. They've pursued them in deep and authentic relationship without ever sacrificing their roles of authority, teaching, training, and instruction in the faith. Their children grow up knowing that their parents like them as well as love them, and the genuine relationships that result can at least not be used against the faith or the church. So those are a few um, ideas from John Nelson about parenting in a way that is not that leads to encouragement rather than discouragement. So pray over those, take those before the Lord. All right, last point, point number three, the lordship of Christ at work. The lordship of Christ at work. We see this in verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now, before we get to this, and this is going to be very quick because we're, we're, running, we're running short on time, so let me, let me get to this. When we come to a, a text like this in Scripture that's talking about bond servants and masters, um, it's very easy as modern readers of this text to wince. Oh, talking about slavery. And the reason we rent, we wince, appropriately so, is because we immediately think of the modern African slave trade, which our country has been so heinously involved in, which was race-based, lifelong, and based on kidnapping. The Bible universally and unequivocally condemns such behavior. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, says that the law of God is to be used lawfully and it condemns enslavers, man-stealers, those who enslave others. That is universally condemned. But while much can be said about that subject, it's important to remember that slavery in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul is writing in the first century was not the same as our New World African institution that developed in the wake of the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's time was not race-based, and it was, it was more like what we would call indentured servitude. They were part of the family. They were involved in the household, which is why Paul addresses bond, bond servants and masters as part of the Christian household. And they're to be re respected, and they're to be honored as those who live under the lordship of Jesus. So remember, and remember one thing, brothers and sisters, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's commended by the Bible. Just because Paul is addressing bond servants and masters doesn't mean that's his preferred method of interaction or that's God's will. It's the reality to which he was writing. And so what he does is people think, they, they, they hear things like this, they're like, well, Bible talks about slavery. How, the question is, how? How does it talk about slavery? It condemns man-stealing and enslavement, and it prescribes a Christ-centered formula for where it existed in Greco-Roman culture that would ultimately lead to its undoing. Paul is dealing with the cultural realities of his time. He's not denouncing the institution of slavery per se, which would have been useless in imperial Rome. It was an established pattern. He's speaking directly to individual Christians within that institution about how to conduct themselves, and what he says is actually quite revolutionary. In fact, as F.F. F. Bruce says, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. End quote. Only within Christianity did the idea eventually arise that slavery was an abominable institution that needed to be abolished. You know where that idea came from? Christians. That's where that idea came from. William Wilberforce led the revolution in England. And it was led by Christians in the United States as well. So why? Why? Largely because of the implications of the gospel that are laid out by Paul. We all as Christians are slaves of Christ who himself became a slave so that he might deliver us. Paul regularly told Christian slave owners that their slaves were equal to them in the sight of God and had to be treated as brothers, 1 Corinthians 7. And in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, he writes that in Christ there is no slave or free, and otherwise we're all equal. So in the case study for this is 
the book of Philemon, the little letter of Paul to Philemon in the New Testament. There, Paul sends Onesimus, who was a Christian slave, back to his Christian master, Philemon, and Philemon is told that Onesimus must be treated as a beloved brother and as a fellow man. And so Christianity has built within it, the gospel has built within it, bond-breaking power, both spiritually and physically and economically and in terms of slavery. So we see this, the most modern then example of this and the way that we can apply this most faithfully is not by going out and becoming bond masters ourselves or bond servants ourselves, but by thinking this in terms of employee and employer relationship, in terms of our work lives, of what we give ourselves to on a daily basis in terms of our vocation and in terms of our work. And so very quickly, I will go through these. First of all, bond servants under the lordship of Christ are to work wholeheartedly for the Lord. Notice what he says. He says, obey in everything those, verse 22, who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, not just when the the master's looking, when the boss is paying attention, then I'm going to really work hard. No, he says, don't do that way. Do it sincerely. See, that's hypocrite. That's hypocrisy. Don't do that. Be sincere in your work. Work as if the boss will never check on you. Because the boss is always checking on you, namely Jesus, okay? The earthly boss may not always be checking on you. The heavenly boss is. So, therefore, verse 23, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord we're going to receive the great paycheck. We're serving the Lord Christ. I'm sure those of you who are business owners or in management or have some degree of responsibility in leading others would thrill as Christians to know that your employees are, are, are doing their work wholeheartedly and sincerely, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. You would be thrilled about that. Yes, yes, that's what I'm trying to do because I'm addressed in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at that. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, those in authority, those who have a role in company leadership or, or anything, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Okay? Treat them justly and fairly. Don't overwork them. Give them margin. Don't micromanage them unless they need to for a season of time to get them to a place where they don't need us. Justly and fairly, pay them well, knowing, and here's the reason, that you also have a master in heaven. Every boss, every Christian boss has a boss, and it's Jesus. Every Christian employee has a boss, and it's Jesus. Every Christian wife has a boss, and it's Jesus. Every Christian husband has a boss, and it's Jesus. Every Christian child has a boss, and it's Jesus. Every Christian Father and mother has a boss, and it's Jesus. See, this is all under the lordship of Christ. No one gets to stake claim of authority over anybody else. We're all under Jesus. Everybody's under Jesus. It just manifests itself in different ways. So let me, as the worship team comes forward, let me close with these questions. And I've, I've made a copy of them on the uh, on the guide that I give out out on the table. So if you don't have to write these questions down, just pick up one of those guides. I'd encourage you to to work through these questions as applications of this sermon. So like I said at the beginning, we prove that Jesus is our Lord. We reveal who our Lord is by the way we live in our families and in our jobs. So ask the following questions and sincerely listen and seek to implement what you discover. So if you're a husband, Christian husbands in this room, ask your wife, how can I love you better? Are there ways that I am harsh with you? In what ways am I harsh with you? Repent, seek your forgiveness, and work on that area of your life. See what I, see what I mean? This is lordship, Christ. This is lordship stuff. Brothers, sisters, are we going to obey Jesus as Lord or not? This is, I'm not playing games up here. This is the Bible. We live under the Lordship of Christ. Honor Him. Don't just walk out of here and don't do any of this stuff. Wife, say to your husband, how can I show you greater respect? 
How can I honor you better? Child, ask your parents, how can I obey you better? In what ways am I not obeying you as quickly or in everything the way I need to? Fathers, ask your children, are there any ways that I discourage you, that I provoke you, that I make you upset? In what ways does daddy make you upset? Servants or employees, talk to your boss. What are the expectations that you have of me? And are there any areas that you perceive I'm slacking or only working when you see me or only working for a paycheck? And masters, employers, business owners, leaders, ask your employees from time to time, do you feel this is a just and fair place to work? Do you feel like things are just around here? Do you like, feel like things are fair around here? If not, speak to me about them. I want to know. If any part of this sermon has revealed to you that Jesus is not your Lord, maybe your life is characterized being dominated by these and you're just convicted of your sin and you're aware of the ways in which your own self-lordship is ruining your life, I've got good news for you this morning. Some of you are fearful of becoming a Christian because you don't want Jesus to be the boss of you. I get it. You want to be the boss of you. But here's what I'm telling you this morning. Jesus is a better boss of you than you are of you. Jesus is more loving of you than you are of you. Jesus is more forgiving of you than you are of you. Jesus is more gracious to you than you are to you. Jesus can help you more than you can help yourself. I used to think that I was a pretty good master of my life until I met Jesus. And then I realized that Jesus is better to me than I am to me. Jesus is better to you than you are to you. He's a better Lord than we are of our own lives. And I'll tell you what, after 20 years as a king, in the kingdom of Jesus, living under his lordship, I never, ever, ever, ever want to go back to living under my own lordship again. It was awful for the 15 years I was under it. Self-lordship is tyranny. Jesus' lordship is freedom. Let's pray. We stand to sing.
Um, there's several meetings today. So the emergency response team is going to meet immediately after the service for lunch and some training with the American Red Cross. So you all know about that. If you're interested, take part of that meeting. See Brandon Boswell after the service. Uh, the deacons have a meeting today at 3 p.m. And then tonight we have our annual business meeting to vote on our budget and to vote on our new elder candidates, Thad Gunderson and Keith Withrow. There will be food afterward. So hope you've seen the email. Please bring enough for your family and uh, as a snack, a finger food to share after we conclude our meeting tonight. Also, um, REACH, ladies, there's a Titus talk tomorrow night. Um, those are monthly meetings of our ladies and sisters in the church. 6.30 tomorrow night at, at Kim Withrow's home. Um, and then finally, we have moved our midweek service this week to Tuesday to accommodate Thanksgiving. So go support Heritage Christian School, eat at Wendy's, help them with that fundraiser, and then come here at 6.30, and we're going to have a Thanksgiving service. If we're asking the members who can attend that service, please prepare a 60-second, brief, concise, Christ-centered testimony of God's goodness to you over this past year that you can share and that we can honor God together tonight or the, on Tuesday night at 6.30 in the Learning Center. Here's the benediction, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely 